we like to celebrate the losers, <laughs> but we don't like to celebrate the truth. Right. I mean, we're the only country that flies the flag of the loser. Mm-hmm. Welcome to part two of Who Should Own the Narrative, where we continue our discussion from part one with Lance Wheeler, a former museum curator at the only state-sponsored civil rights museum in the country, the Mississippi Civil Rights Museum. This is Loki Mulholland, and it's time to get uncomfortable. So I think if you if you do it that way, if you have those conversations that way, it's it's not it's me challenging you, but it's me also you tr- me trying to also make you see another side of it, right? That's what history does. Right. So you're challenging through logic, not emotions. Yes, not emotions. You yourself have to strip out that emotion to even be able to to engage with them. Yes. Because obviously this it's, it's a very emotional issue, particularly when people are in denial. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's just flat out offensive. So the second part of your definition of museums is as follows. Museums must redefine themselves and reemerge as institutions that operate as resource centers that allow all community members to share their voices and, and give an inclusive, honest narrative. That's the first part of that. So all community members to share their voices, even when they're completely wrong? Mm-hmm. Even when they're completely wrong. Because if, 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 but who am I to say, who am I to say your story is correct and your story is not correct, right? It, 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 it may be, honestly, it may be correct, but you're never going to argue with you. You're never going to win an emotional argument, right? But for you to bring people together, and look and see them as a, you see the buildings as a community center and you allow the people to share their thoughts and narratives that's how you really get to an inclusive story uh narrative but, but what happens when those narratives are just hate i mean obviously some people just come into these things just to light the place up yeah people just come to light the place up um but if you if you don't do that then how are you better than them excluding your story that and that's how I that's how I personally be, uh, view it. You may feel some type of way, but I'm still going to invite you to the table because I also need to know your thoughts and why you think that way. How do you feel? How do you feel that way? And then I need to also hear somebody. Okay, who doesn't stand on our side? Why do you think that way? How do you feel about that? Um, my job is not to. My job as a historian is not to pick and choose what what is the best story. My job is to interpret the story, right? Hmm. So when someone comes in and you're going to have the dialogue with them, it's not about telling them they're wrong, but showing them why you're right. I think my way is to show them there's fat, there's other sides of the story, but your own. Other side of the story, right. Because mm-hmm. I've always, I've always wanted there's three sides to the truth, right? Is your truth, that person's truth, and the real truth. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, and you need to hear those. You need to hear both sides in order to come to a, the, the truth. And and so your definition continues. Um, museums should showcase all facets of the human experience and emotion, from anger and sadness to happiness and hope. At its simplest form, museums are more than buildings that house artifacts. Museums are and should be places that take individuals on a spiritual journey bridging the past with the present and beyond. 
Mississippi is a unique place in, in that narrative of bridging the past with the beyond, uh, particularly when we, when we take a look at Emmett Till and, and the narrative today of Black Lives Matter with Trayvon Martin, Eric Gardner and such. How are people really dealing with that there in Mississippi? Because obviously with Emmett Till, especially in the Delta, they still don't want to talk about it or confront the past. They, they shoot up the signs about Emmett Till. They're saying, we don't want that narrative told. Mm-hmm. And so some people look at it and say, look, we aren't that anymore. So why do we keep talking about it? I'm going to give you the cheesy cliche answer. We need to learn from our past, which is true. Uh, because Emmett Till was 1955. The assassination of Emmett Till was 1955. You have Trayvon Martin in 2012. These two young men were killed for what? Um, Because they were considered to be suspects or accused of doing something. I I, I think you, you have to tell that narrative in order to really learn uh, from our mistakes, number one, and also learn how we need to heal as a country and how, we need to start looking at individuals as people, mm-hmm. not who, not their color, not their creed, not their gender. Um, and I think particularly we need to remember those people who lost their lives for those because we wouldn't have gotten this far if that never had happened, sadly to say. Right. Um, and when it comes to Emmett Till, He's never truly had his justice, right? Right. And in order for us to have him, in order for us to give him his justice, we have to speak his name. We must remember who he is. And we must do that with Trayvon Martin as well. We must remember these individuals. Um, I tell people I do my work. For me, um, Trayvon Martin is me. I was, I, you know, I, I was that kid growing up with a hoodie on and just mm-hmm. me being a, a young black man. And so, I do what I do because of him also. And also now I have a son. I have to learn to prepare him to be a young black boy then who's going to become a black man in the world. Right. And so I think we have to remember. It's our job to remember. As human beings, that's our job. And, and as a historian, it's our job to make sure that we have their names carried forth and on. And making that connection, drawing those lines that go back from 1955 that still continue today yes because you know uh some people some young people who come to the who come to the museums it's hard to figure out how do you connect a story from 1955 until today but you can you know and and, and that's how you do that I, for example i use it when i was at the museum one of the things i would do is um particularly in gallery two um they talk, we're talking about reconstruction, lynching, black violent communities, and you really see the onset of Jim Crow. And so right. when you get in there, you see lynching monoliths. Um, and I, explain, and I the first thing I ask people is, what I ask students, what is a lynching? And they're gonna give me the definition hanging by a tree. And so what, I, what I'm supposed to do is say, how do I connect that to them? So I always say, okay, let's, let's go a little bit deeper than that. Think of it as killing you with no due process of law. Because all those individuals that were lynched in Mississippi, but all the individuals that be lynched, period, never had true due process. Right. And so we just call that murder or homicide today. 
So basically meaning that people still get lynched today without due process. And so in, in that space, in that moment, it's a learning lesson because I make them, we say together, Trayvon Martin. We say Michael Brown. We say Eric Gardner. We say Sandra Bland. We say those names to make them really resonate. Yo, this was not that long ago. People are still being lynched without due process of law. And so once you're able to connect it that way, they understand why Emmett Till in 1955 had no due process and how he was lynched. And that's how you connect that. Right. But but more in particular, though, is who is doing the lynching? Mm-hmm. Because it's not just someone killing someone else. Not everyone is getting lynched. Not everybody was lynched, but then also we take the definition a little further. Lynching can also be another way to kill you slowly, right? Killing you in right. a system of a, of a school system. A school system is failing. That is a form of lynching because it's killing my mind, which is going to cause me to do what? If I can't get a fair education, that's usually going to make me, I'm going to be poor, I'm going to be illiterate. And if and sometimes if, I, if that's the case, I'm going to have to what, commit a crime. Then what I'm going to be put into a system called jail, all right? School to prison pipeline, right? And so there's other forms. And so in that moment, we're, we're hitting so many aspects for these young students or these young people that come into the museum. They start to see it for a minute. They have to take a step back and realize it does affect you. And it still does. It wasn't just 50 or 60 years ago. This movement still, these, these rights that we're still fighting for, this equality that we're still fighting for, is still prevalent today. Right. And, and with the lynching of Emmett Till and other lynchings in Mississippi, I mean, Mississippi was basically ground zero for lynchings in America. This was all you know, supported by an apparatus by the by the state. This was allowed to happen. There was never any due process. You never actually took someone to court for this. And if you did, an all-white jury made sure they would go free. I mean, it really wasn't a crime to kill a black person in Mississippi. And understanding that context and bringing it up to today... And you're saying the authorities are killing innocent black people. This is what Hands Up, Don't Shoot is all about. Now, a white person would say, well, wait, well, wait a second. The police don't just randomly kill people. You're all just reading too much into this. But when you take that history and apply it, it, it shows that we don't live devoid of the past. Something, something else is going on here. Mm-hmm. And so as as you said, when when you have these kids come in and you're talking about Emmett Till, now you're suddenly making this history, these black and white photos and words on the wall, come to life, and and to be relevant. That's part of the role of museums. Yeah, that's the role of museums. I think, and that's the role of museum professionals. It doesn't. It's it's okay, it's cool to have the stuff on the wall. Um, but it's, it's how you engage, right? It is how you make re- history relevant. Um, because if you don't make history relevant, a lot of people would tell you growing up, history was boring. Right. Uh, and that's because you re- you're forced to remember dates and dead people. And majority of the time, those dates, those dead people are white people. And right. then if you don't, if you don't find a way to engage all visitors, but particularly visitors who are black, brown, and, and indigenous and colored people, if you can't find help them find who they are and their narrative, and, and and tell them who they are through different people, not the consistent narrative, it it gets it gets boring, it gets um, repetitive. Um, I tell people all the time, 
Um, I did a, I created a presentation called Gucci, the Uncle Remus to Gucci, right? The legacy mm-hmm. of Jim Crow. And basically I started my introduction, like as a, as a black man growing up, I'm ready disengaged with history by my parents are going to tell me how to be black. I'm going to have that black conversation. You know, you got to be careful. You got to think how you move at a young age. And then if I'm constantly reading the same narrative over and over in school, and then I'm hearing this from my grandparents and my great aunts, you know, the same narrative. If I show up to a civil rights museum, I'm going to breeze through it because I feel like I know it. Mm-hmm. But it's it, but it's the job of the interpreter, the ambassador to engage them so they can find themselves through the narrative through different people. And that's what the civil rights museum does. And that's also what the history museum does as well. Um, but that but you have to have good people doing that kind of work. And but there are good people in the work that are doing that currently. So how do we create the bridge and take them on a journey of understanding and, and empathy, particularly when it comes to racism and the, uh, and the civil rights movement? For me, it's, 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 it's honestly through conversation. And what I do first, I tell people all the time, I'm, I show up as a black man first in my space. Mm-hmm. And, you're, and that means you're going to hear me as a black man first. You're gonna, I'm, you're gonna come in contact with me. And you're gonna have these conversation with me, but I'm not gonna use my biases to persuade you. I'm gonna use, I'm gonna give you the historical facts. But by by, by by giving the historical facts, we're also gonna, for me, I'm gonna also build an emotional connection with you while we're interpreting, while we're talking about history, and I'm gonna make sure that I also try to bring in some personal aspects that you can say, okay, how would you feel if your family went through this process? Let's think about this process. So we can really think about how racism works and how we can ultimately heal through conversation. And that's what the civil rights movement, the civil rights movement was truly about in my, in, in my opinion, people, different people coming together, mm-hmm. working together from different backgrounds, having conversations, figuring out how do we bring equality for all people and then but bu- building and also shaping long-lasting relationships. And so that's what I do in those spaces. And I think that's what the civil rights movement does as a whole. You have to have the conversation first. You have to start building within that conversation. You have, you have to start building a little bit of trust. So you have to give yourself a little bit and the visitor has to give yourself a little bit. Then ultimately you can have a conversation about where do we go from here? What is your role as, as a human being to make sure that you're continuing to work once you leave this building. Mm. And your simple work can be going home and just simply telling your family about what you learned today. Right. It could be simply coming back to a, to a visit or a program. It can be simply learning that going door to door and having a conversation and, and trying to empower your community. Or even like Mr. Hezekiah Watkins always says, mm. a movement starts with one person. It doesn't, it starts with one person, but it finishes with a group of people. Right. So if I, if I if I see trash in my community, if I pick it up and I get two friends and they get two more friends, that's how a movement really starts, right? Right. It starts like that. I think that and that's and that's how you and that's I think that's how you really start having the conversation about racism and how do we ultimately try to defeat this this thing called racism. But you need people. I think people tend to think and I tell people this all the time. Civil rights it affects black people, yes. But it, but we shouldn't just think of the civil rights movement as as a black movement. In my opinion, right? In my opinion, it's a people's movement. You need people to bring change. That's what made the movement so successful. In my opinion, 
Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I've called it the first true American revolution because it was for everyone and not just white male property owners. Now, you said something that when you come into this space, you come in as a black man first. And what, what, what did you mean by that? Is this versus coming in as an employee? So I, I'm, in, I'm, in, I'm physically in the space as a museum professional, but the first thing you see, and, and that's what all people do with, they, with their eyes, the first thing you see is going to see my color. And so I'm going to make sure I, I use that not to my advantage, but I use that to also have the conversation, right? Because t- people are always going to ask me this when I was in that space, particularly African-Americans are going to ask me, how does it feel to be in this space and be black? Hmm. How, do white, how do white people react in this space? And then from, from white people, they're going to ask me, um, they're going to say comments like, well, I've heard people say, I, I never thought, I never thought about it this way. Uh, I didn't, I didn't think the story of the movement was this bad, or oh, I'm sorry. And what, what can I do? And so usually that stems off of me, how they see me first. Um, but yeah. And I, so that's why I always say it's been moments where I have to move, remove my music, my museum professional hat, take my hat off and talk to a young, for example, I'll give you an example. For a young lady that came into the museum, she was 14 years old, black young lady. Um, she, this is her first time coming to the museum when she was with her school. And so we got to the school. We have a schoolhouse that talks about the Brown decision. What does that look like in Mississippi? Right. And so after the film was over, she asked me, why us as a, as a, why us as a people? Why us as black people have to go through this? And so as a museum professional, I can give you the facts and dates, but that's not what she was looking for. She was looking for the empathy at, from a black man to answer that question. And so in that moment, I had to take a step back and, and tell her at, and honestly and say, you know, I don't know. But we from this from this from this museum and from the people that you're with, we can figure out figure out the next step of how do we overcome together. And so that's why I made that comment. So what does it feel like uh, walking through those museums time after time after time, having to tell these stories over and over and over again? That's interesting that you said that. I've been having conversations with African-American museum professionals throughout the field. It's hard telling that narrative and being black, you know? Um, You know, sometimes it gets draining to tell the story of, of... pain and suffering but also i want to say that through all that you also see hope and you do see people overcoming but it is sometimes it takes a toll on you um finding out more stories and 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 going deeper but it even gets deeper when you actually have people who experience the movement come into the space and you hear their story um but i i always say it's important but it's important for People of color who are museum professionals, particularly black, that are in spaces like that, you must find the balance of working, but also not not taking your work home. Hmm. So, you know, for me, coming to a civil rights museum is a little different, um, only because usually my mother and people I know are up on those walls, but. How should your typical white person who has zero immediate connection to the subject matter come to a museum about slavery, civil rights movement, Japanese internment camps? You know? 
I think white people and all people in general who have not experienced that narrative should come to it opened. And then I think it's their responsibility to op- open their minds and, and, and be honest about uh, humanity and how ugly humanity can be. And it's their responsibility once they come out, in my opinion, is to figure out how do you not allow this to happen? But also then how do you take on the role of creating these conversations and the importance of why we should talk about these things and not hide them? You know, so someone asked me today about um, how do we keep organizations from just checking off a box when it comes to diversity and inclusion? All too often there's a there's a cover your butt sort of thing going on there. They want to say, well, we did the training this year, so we're good. How do we keep people from doing that when visiting a museum? They're not just, you know, going back, you know, and, and trying to look woke and tell everyone that they went to the museum. To be honest, there's no way to there's no way to control that. I, I don't have the answer to that. I, I don't I don't know if you can really control A, I got the okay. I check this off my box. I don't have to come back. You can't save everybody. You can't help enlighten everybody, right? My job is not to educate you. My job is to help you educate yourself. So my job is to help you enlighten enlighten yourself so you want to educate yourself. But I I I can't help I can't control that. If people want to engage and, and have a real conversation, then let's do that, right? Mm-hmm. At least at a museum, you have an opportunity to connect them more closely to the topic. Yes. I, I've heard it once said that the what informs, but the why transforms. Mm. It's, it's, it's like you said. You know, we, like, you know, we've heard this all before. Dr. King had a speech. Rosa sat down on the bus. We get it. It happened. We don't always get the why too much on, on a deeper level you know, besides freedom. That's why having someone like uh, Hezekiah Watkins, who was the youngest of the Freedom Riders, and I believe arrested the most. Over 100, 101 times? He's been arrested 101 times? Right, yeah. I think that's what the number was. But now, now you can start to get the why. Because here he is. It's, you know, he's in the flesh. Here's this, this personal story. You can't deny his experience. There's something about being in that space and hearing those stories that it can really trans- transform you. How can we do that outside of the context of the museum with someone who doesn't really know anything but wants to learn and wants to learn something and, and, and then move them along that path towards understanding and empathy? And not just with the civil rights movement of the past, but what is happening to people today? I think we have to call people out on it, but... If you want to, if you want to have a, if you're, if it's outside the space, if you call somebody out on it, it should be your, you should be mindful how you approach that conversation. And the reason why I'm saying that, if you want to affect change, you can't attack somebody if they have microaggression. You want to come at them, okay? Let me, let me, let me politely say this to you. And why do you think this is this is wrong? I think that's how you do it. Because the moment you come at, if you approach somebody with aggression they're going to get aggressive or they're going to get defensive. It's all about approach, right? And it's all about tone and, and then really being, being able to back some of the things you say, some of the things you say. Um, and I think that's how you really start that process. And then you, I think you also got to give out those people who, who are just looking for fights 
allow them to go on their little rant and go on their to go and what they need to say, and then you follow up with, okay, now let me give you my side of the story. I think that's how conversation is all about conversation. As long as we don't talk, if we don't talk to each other, we can't affect change if we don't talk. Because we're just gonna always have we're always gonna have biases and assumptions and stereotypes about people if we don't talk. Yeah, you know, there's um, a lot of times there's this question of why do I, as an African American, have to help white people try and understand? It's it's the uh, we've been telling them this for years. If they don't get it, then they aren't going to get it, or they don't want to get it. Hmm. And my 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 only answer that I have is because I'm a parent. I want I want my child to, to live a better life than I have now. I, my, I have a good life, but my, but I want my son to have an even better life. And I think for me, my my child living in a safe environment where he can prosper as a young black man is what I what I what I wish for the most. If I got to keep having these conversations with people versus if they're white, black, Asian, brown, whatever you want to call them, I will. Um, because as a father and as a parent, and I'm sure you can relate, you want your kids to have a better life with you and they feel safe in the environment. And so it may not be my job to teach all white people, or all people, but my job is at least you're going to hear me. You're going to have a conversation with me and you're going to. And, and I think that's important. Yeah. You know, it's interesting with the, uh, I did a film called Black, White, and Us, which is about racism through the lens of transracial adoptions. Um, the the white parents echoed those same sentiments. They have to, for the sake of their children, educate themselves and the people around them because they want their children to come home alive. They never had to or chose to think about that until they adopted these black children. Now, but I would like to say, I will say this though, it is tiring. As a black man, that does get tiring. Like I don't, I shouldn't have to educate you on this. Um, but it comes for me, it, it, it's all about how do I make, how do I leave the world a better place for my own son? Um, so. What do you hope to see at the end of the day you know, with these with these museums and, and such, particularly with the focus you've chosen in your career? I would like to see more conversations and more and more programs, institutions that are challenging people's thoughts um, across the country. Um, and it doesn't always have to be a black and white story. I think I want to see more inclu- inclusivity. inclusivity about other stories and other narratives that are told. And then, because I think that helps us create our humanity. And so that's what I truly want to see. Um, I want to see some healing through these narratives. And I think that helps. Um, I tell people, I used to tell people all the time when I was at the museum, it's my job to make you cry. <laughs> and people look at me like I'm crazy, but I say, and I say that to say, I want to evoke emotion. Even if it's even if it's you crying, is you getting angry? Um, but once we get past all that minutia, we can have a real conversation. We can truly engage with each other, and I think that's what I like to see um, cultural institutions like museums to do. And have you seen that where someone has gone through and 
and keeps coming back and, and they are trying to engage in conversation because it, it it's really an uncomfortable thing to do. Yeah, I've seen people young, like early 20s, college students, black, white, women, men, uh, transgender, gay, Muslims, Jewish, Jewish people, um, Christians come back. I've seen all that because they want to know how can they help uh, make the movement because we're in a movement now. How do we help continue to fight? How do we continue to bring change? So, yeah, I've seen people come back constantly through programs at the museums. Um, so, yeah, people really people want that. All maybe not all people, but there's there are people out there who are fighting for change. That's that's reassuring to hear. I want to thank you, Lance, for for not just jumping on here and having this conversation, but for the work you do and 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 trying to educate all of us uh, and being willing to put yourself through the challenges that come with that. Uh, yeah, I, I really love the theme you brought up about creating this space for conversation, and that you can't have a conversation with without information. There is sort of that dual role, but at, at the end of the day, it is upon each of us to become informed and then to inform others, because if we truly believe in humanity, then we should be doing that already, step outside of ourselves and to think about others. And like, and like you said, having a real conversation where we can make mistakes and, and learn, that's, you know, that's so key. You know, it's just uh, it's, it's always a pleasure to to, to speak with you and and, and you know, again thank you again thank you thank you for listening to hear all of our interviews uncut and without commercials you can visit patreon.com slash loki and for just five dollars a month you can enjoy this series and much more